We're going to get started. I know people are still going to be trickling in, but uh, in order for us to, to do this the way we want to do it and have you put it into practice, um, even here on a Sunday, we've got to get rolling. So let me pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, we want to understand it more, uh, not so that we can brag about trivia, but so that we can know you better, so that we can communicate to others how great and good you are, so that more people will come to the knowledge of you, that they would glorify you um, in their lives here on earth. Father, we want to be the kind of people who are disciplined in our Bible reading, not to check it off a list and not out of a sense of duty, but because we delight in knowing you better. So uh, guide us today as we talk about um, understanding the scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you should have grabbed a piece of paper, oh, several pieces of paper, a stapled packet on the back. If, if someone would, wouldn't mind uh, helping distribute some of those, uh, that'd be helpful. But we're going to be going through that. And I've, we've got some PowerPoint this week to help you keep up with some of the blanks, if I can remember to do this and this at the same time. Uh, but that's how we're going to jump right in. Today, we're going to talk um, about illumination and context. So this is from, based on the book, Playing With Fire, which today is available in the library for $10, and it still will be until it sells out, and then we'll buy more. Um, you don't have to have this book to understand the series or to know what's going on, but this would be a helpful resource for you um, for the rest of your life if you hang on to the book and as we're going through the series. So Playing With Fire by Walt Russell is available in the library for $10. Uh, the story of a seminary professor who's in the middle of teaching and notices a crying student uh, in the room. And the crying student began to actually sob and interrupt the class. And so uh, the professor was fearful that maybe he, he might have offended um, somebody. And so he, he stopped and asked if anything was wrong. Sobbing, the student responded, I am crying because I feel so, so, so sorry for you. The professor said, uh, why do you feel sorry for me? Uh, he was perplexed. Because, said the student, it is so hard for you to understand the Bible. I just read it and God shows me the meaning. And, and what's communicated there is often what's communicated in uh, evangelicalism around America is that we don't need a study the Bible, we just need to read it and God will magically, in some cases, reveal the meaning to us. There's this false dichotomy between the studiers, okay, and, and maybe the more mystical, meditative people in the church, and that God reveals the word differently to these people and differently to these people. And I want to kind of trash that dichotomy today and talk about study um, in a sense of leaning on the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit, waiting for the Spirit to lead while also not neglecting our responsibility to study. And so uh, this is from chapter 3 of Playing With Fire. It's called Illumination, Truth from the Top Down. So we're going to dive right in. What is illumination? And regardless of what that means in Christian theology, when you hear the word illuminate, what do you think? Light, lighting up. Yeah, you, you, you have light in a dark place. Something is illuminated. And so that's what we want to think of in the general sense, and then we want to apply that to reading our Bibles and understanding that. So the first point is reading the Bible is a spiritual and a rational process. 
Reading the Bible is a spiritual and a rational process. We want to be very careful that we're balancing these two things together. Um, you'll see in your notes, uh, John 8, 43-47, there's a quote from Jesus, and he talks about why people don't understand his words. And the question um, can be phrased many different ways, um, but the, basically it's, why do you not understand the Bible? And we talked a little about this in our groups last week. Uh, but it is a spiritual process and a rational process. Without the spiritual process, we just get intellectual assent to facts. Okay, the Assyrians came and destroyed the Northern Empire. I know that. Jesus came in this year. I know that. This verse says this. This book is about this. And I know this fact. And, and that is clearly a, the rational process. But without the spiritual process, it just leads to really knowledgeable people going to hell. There, there's, no, there's no spiritual aspect of it. On the other hand, we have people that, that mystify the spiritual aspect so that there's no need to study. You know, I don't need to know who these people are. I just kind of read it and then wait for the Holy Spirit to speak something into my life that might be related to the text and might not. And we don't want to divorce the spiritual and the rational process. We've got several other um, scriptures in your notes that you can read later that basically talk about the need to read and to study to understand the scriptures. In fact, the, Peter, the passage from Second Peter shows um, that Peter had trouble understanding Paul and some of the letters that Paul wrote. And so there is a need to intellectually dive in. There is also a need to be spiritually enabled to dive in and to understand. Point number two is we must read the Bible in submission to the Holy Spirit. We must read the Bible in submission to the Holy Spirit. Too often, if you've grown up in the church, we can, we can tend to approach this book like, I know what's in this. I've got this. I've learned it in fourth grade. I remember these stories. And that's the end. And we've come in over the text and rather than submitting ourselves under the text. Below that point, you've got several um, blanks. And, and what we want to say there is that he illuminates what he inspired. So if we believe that the, the Holy Spirit inspired the text, we believe that he'll illuminate it as well. So he illuminates what he inspired. And that's really important. If the Holy Spirit, working through men down through the ages, inspired this text that we hold in our hands, then he will illuminate those who read it to understand it. But there are a few restrictions on that. So turn, turn your page. The next sub-point there is that only believers can truly understand the significance of the text. And this is where we get into the importance of illumination. Only believers can truly understand the significance of the text. Now, there are college professor, professors, even seminary professors, there are people in think tanks across America and across the world that know more about the Bible than you and me. They know more about the Bible than you and me. But the scripture is clear that it takes the Holy Spirit working within a person to help them to understand the text. Now, you can understand facts. Anybody can read the words on the page in whatever language they understand and ascertain the facts. But to truly understand the significance of what the facts point to, we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2 points that out. Verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text so we understand the significance. 
The next point is really important. The Spirit does not change the meaning of the text, nor does He reveal secret meanings. Um, too often, uh, we're looking for, uh, again, this, this mystical approach where we read these words and we expect the Holy Spirit to, to kind of change the meaning of the text so that I can understand it or to reveal some secret thing that no one's understood in 2,000 plus years of reading the Bible. He does not do that. That is not how the Holy Spirit works in and through the Scriptures. And last, there we go. There we go. The Holy Spirit moved in men to write what He wanted them to write in the way He wanted them to write it. We would be foolish to ignore the way in which He inspired these men and focus only on the words. So not only do we have the words that the men wrote in the letters, in the histories, in the Gospels, not only do we have those words, but those words are not haphazardly thrown on a page. Those words were thought through. Those words were written out in very similar ways to how we write except that the Holy Spirit inspired these men as they wrote these words. And so we not only want to pay attention to the words, we want to pay attention to the way they're written. Okay? So when you get a receipt at the store, you read that differently than you read a novel. You pay attention to different things in in different ways when you have a receipt compared to a novel. It's really, really important that we understand that as the Spirit illuminates the text, He he illuminates the significance of the text to us. And then as the Holy Spirit illuminates the text, as we read and as we meditate and as we understand, then we are also to do our part and to study and to dig in. And that's where we jump into context. Context. Three most important things in real estate. Anybody know what they are? Location, 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 location. What we want to say about reading the Bible is the three most important things in understanding and biblical interpretation are context, context, context. Pastor Ron explained this a little bit last week by kind of doing the Bible roulette and pointing to a verse and then pointing to a verse and then pointing to a verse and coming out with a crazy interpretation that that tells us to hang ourselves. If you read certain passages in isolation, you can get all kinds of crazy stories and crazy things. I want to give you... uh, an example that I completely ripped off another pastor because I thought it was so good um, on the illustration of context. Think of a stop sign. You're driving down the road in your car. There's a four-way stop. You're coming to a stop sign. I pray that your instinct is to stop at the line next to the stop sign. So you see a red octagon. You see white letters. It says stop. And so your reaction in the car is to step on the brakes and to stop. You look and then you go, or you kind of roll and keep going. <laughs> Whatever happens, you do something, hopefully, with that stop sign there. Now, imagine you go to a vintage store, okay? It's got antiques, and there's a big stop sign in the section of the store, kind of rusted, looks kind of cool, it's old. If you're walking in the store, I don't think any of you would go, and then continue on. You would understand the context of the store you're in, that's that's probably an overpriced thing that you can buy to put somewhere in your garage. I don't know where you'd put a stop sign. But you react differently to stop on that sign than you would on the sign on the road. Okay? Now, uh, imagine you're going to a sporting event and those annoying people that are handing out um, flyers or information things are there and they give you one and you walk and on it to get your attention it has a big stop sign. It says stop. I hope you don't see that paper and go, oh! Look and then keep going. 
the piece of paper saying stop so that you'll, you'll look and you'll read. Now, maybe if you can't read and walk at the same time, you should stop. But the point is, the stop sign on the paper is not acting in the same way as the stop sign on the road or the stop sign in the vintage store. Okay? Stop. Now, um, you are saying something to your wife or your husband that you know annoys them, maybe gets under their skin, and they say, stop. Your reaction probably needs to be to stop. (laughs) Stop doing what you are doing. On the other hand, if you're telling your wife how beautiful she is and how wonderful she is, she's a great cook, you love everything about her, and she says, stop. (laughs) You keep going. (laughs) Right? You you continue. You keep going. And, And so stop means different things in different contexts. You see that? From the stop sign on the road to the wife saying stop, there's different reactions in different places to understand that. And that's how we need to understand stuff in the Bible. All the different stuff, things that we come across in the Bible, we need to understand the context that they're said in. So context is very important, and we want to see this point. A text without a context is a pretext. And I thought that was really clever until I realized I wasn't quite sure what a pretext was. (laughs) So... I had to look it up, but basically the, the point of the pretext is to put something in front of something else to disguise it, to hide it, to hide true intentions. And so it's a pretext. Um, and so you put something in front of something else, you put something out there to hide the true meaning or to hide the reality. And so if you have a text without any kind of context, you just rip it out, you, it's a pretext because it's not actually saying what it was meant to say. So we want to be very careful with that. One of the good points that Dr. Russell makes in his book is that meaning comes from the top down. Meaning comes from the top down, not from the bottom up. From the larger units of scripture down to the smaller units. Okay, and that's why oh, did I forget this? Okay, here we go. We're going to skip ahead. This is on your paper and this is a helpful way to look at things. We start from the top and we go down. Okay? So genre you have there at the top, and those, that's what we're going to get into in the following weeks in this series. But the genre is the type of literature that you're reading. And so you start there. Is this poetry? Is this history? Is this Jesus telling a parable? Is this Jesus relating a real experience? What is going on in the genre? Then you move down to the big idea of the unit of the thought. And so you come down some more. And then you come down to the paragraph, and then to the sentence, and then even down to the word. One real easy way to see this is if you went to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Now when we start going down and down and down, we begin to see units and paragraphs that begin to focus things. So in the middle of chapter 5, Jesus begins to say, You have heard it said, and then talks about an Old Testament law. And then it says, But I say to you. So you see... These, these thoughts coming together, there's a main theme, and it begins to whittle down all the way from this big unit of thought down to even the very words. So we don't want to look at a word, isolate it by itself in the scripture, and then make judgments based solely on that word. We need to start from a bigger view and then come down to the word. We need to see it in that way. And in your Bibles, the point before that was paragraphs usually show a complete thought or statement. Uh, if you have a more literal translation, the ESV, the NASB, the, the King James, the New King James, um, those Bibles will have a pretty reliable paragraphing system. Um, 
if you have an NIV or NLT or something like that, a lot of times those paragraphs are divvied up a whole lot differently. So if you have one of the more literal versions, you'll be able to see paragraphs in, in a very helpful way. And that is where we want to camp on a lot of scriptures. Is look at the paragraph and let the paragraph tell us what we need to know. Well, as we move on, there's three types of context. Okay, well, there might be more, but for our purposes to help us today, there are three types of context we want to look at. First one is literary context. Literary context. We talked about this, genres. Um, I helped our high schoolers understand genres by asking them about music genres and movie genres. They immediately got it, right? There's rap, there's R&B, there's all these different things. You go to movies, there's sci-fi, there's drama, there's chick flick, whatever. There's all these different genres. So when we get to the literary context, we want to know, take note of the genre in the scripture. And we've got to play according to those rules. You have to play according to those rules. Now imagine trying to play basketball, basketball by the rules of football. Okay? So you're playing with the rules of football and you're playing basketball. That doesn't work. First of all, dribbling and, and passing works totally different and, and running and moving. All those things work different. How you score and what you score into change. So we have to use the rules of the genre to interpret that genre. That's really important that we understand that. So genre is part of the literary context and then grammar, even down to the grammar um, that is used. We want to make sure that we're understanding how grammar is being used. Okay? After literary context, we have the historical cultural context. And this is usually what we think of when we think of context. And for good reason. Um, if we're reading the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, we've got to know a lot of context to understand what's going on there. And so if you want to take a look at that, I think it's John chapter 4, just read it and see what would I need to understand what's going on here as far as historical, cultural context. Some of the things, just the author, who's writing it, how close to the time are they writing it, um, the audience, who's receiving this gospel, this letter, this history. Um, geography is your blank there. Uh, it helps to know why in the world is it saying that um, the people coming from the north of Israel coming down to Jerusalem are still going up to Jerusalem. We usually use up to mean north. What's going on there? Well, if you know the geography of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the highest place in the area. And so literally to get to Jerusalem, you must go up. And that's important to know the geography. We, don't you lose a lot of storylines when you're reading the Bible and you have no clue what's going on? That's why you have maps in the back of your Bible. They're amazing. Use them. Um, culture. Right? We, don't, we don't understand some of these cultural things. You remember um, Eleazar, Abraham's servant, when he goes to find Isaac? He makes an oath by putting his hand under Abraham's thigh. That's culturally very interesting. I mean, if I were going to go do something for John Bessie and make a, uh, an oath with him, it would be highly uncomfortable for me to put my hand under his thigh and say, John, I promise I will do this. And he says, get off of me. Okay? <laughs> now, the cultural context there, that was normal. That was very normal. That was just a normal thing that happened. And so we, we need to know the context. Other things, religion, politics, the economy, etc. Looking into those contexts helps us to understand the scriptures. The last context is theological. The theological context. And the first thing we have to understand about this is progressive revelation. And all that's meant there is that God reveals himself and his ways and his plan progressively over time. So Noah only knew a certain amount because God had only revealed a certain amount to Noah. Now, we are the most blessed people on the planet and in history because we've got the whole thing. We've got the whole thing. We've even got how it ends. 
and we know it, and we have it in, in our language, and we have study Bibles, and we have all these helps. And so we understand the progression of Revelation. We understand why now there are different things going on in the New Testament than went on in the Old Testament, the people of Israel and the people in the church. So to understand the progressive revelation, to understand the story of Scripture is very important as we connect things together. And then J.I. Packer has this amazing quote that I love. The Bible appears like a symphony orchestra with the Holy Ghost as its Toscanini. Each instrument has been brought willingly, spontaneously, creatively to play his notes just as the great conductor desired, though none of them could ever hear the music as a whole. The point of each part only becomes fully clear when seen in relation to all the rest. Okay, so all these different instruments making all different kinds of of sounds together do something that none of them could do on their own. And so the same thing in the scripture. When we begin to step back and look at the whole of scripture, what's happening, what's going on. We look at the prophets and then we look ahead to where the prophecies are fulfilled. We look back at the history of Israel and we see Jesus fulfilling so much of that history in the gospels. As we see the theological context, we've got to understand that this does not exist by itself. Paul's letters have a context because Paul is a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish home, who has a Jewish background, which happens to be the Old Testament. And so that helps us to understand things as well. Um, Ron made this really cool thing from one of his professor's um, notes and made it all spiffy. So here's some more context questions we need to ask. If you have in the middle your scripture, you're reading your Bible, and you see on the page what is written, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. That is what is written. Now we have to look at other things. What precedes that? What follows that? Who's it written to? Who wrote it? And so many of those things. But these are some of the basics that help us look around the text. Look around the text. And what we're going to talk about in a little bit here is is these coffee cup verses, you know what I'm saying? The, the, the verses that fit on a coffee cup and they're super inspirational when you're really groggy in the morning you have coffee in your cup or whatever and you're like, I can do all things through. Woo! Christ who strengthens me, right? You've got that and it's a coffee cup and it's just a simple verse and it's an easy verse and all too often they're ripped out of context. Just completely ripped out of context. And so we want to do more than just spout off the verse. We want to look at a test case. And so quickly... We're going to look at a test case, and then I'm going to give you a few test cases to go over in your groups. The test case is Matthew 18, 19 through 20. Uh, and it could be just 20. Uh, how many of you have quoted this before? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there, I am, there am I among them. Different contexts have you said that. And I've used that. Um, I, I was chastened by reading Playing With Fire, and Dr. Russell's take on this is that oftentimes we take verse 20, and we go like this. Here's verse 20. All I can see is verse 20. And that sounds really good. Hey, there's two or three. John and Matt are here. All right, sweet. There Jesus is among us. And no doubt that's true. But that's not the point of the passage. So we're missing the point of the passage if that's all that we focus on when we see um, that verse. So there's so much here. But some people see this verse as a guarantee of answered prayer. Verse uh, 19. Two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Okay, so Stephen and I agree on something. Let's go, Lord. We agreed. Right? And clearly, we, don't, we wouldn't want to hold to that, but sometimes we think that that's the case, or some teachers skew that to lead people astray. Some take from this that Jesus is present in a special way anytime two or three Christians are gathered together. So anytime, hey, Christian, hey, Christian, hey, there's two or three of us. Jesus is here in a special way. 
uh, maybe, maybe. But that's not what the passage is talking about. And so we want to jump back to the paragraph, okay? And so in the paragraph in Matthew 18, the paragraph begins in verse 15. And in verse 15, we see something that, if we just read 15 and we just read 20, we're not quite sure how things got connected there. But it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then 19 and 20. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Some really, really important things that we see in that passage that explain what 19 and 20 mean in context of what comes before. So this is clearly a text about church discipline, about how sin is to be dealt with between the people in the church. That's what's, that's what's, that's what's happening here. That's what's being talked about. So we have to go back and see the whole paragraph. And then it's helpful to go look after the paragraph. Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. So we're talking about sin being dealt with, and then we talk about forgiving. Okay, there's a, there's a really big connection there. Go before that. Jesus talks about the parable of the lost sheep. See, these aren't haphazardly thrown in there. Matthew wasn't like story, 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 parable, story. They're placed in there by the Holy Spirit through, the, through Matthew in a certain order that helps us understand the whole. So to better understand Matthew 15 through 20, you've got to read the whole paragraph and all the text around it. We see some other things. Um, two or three, we see that reflecting the Old Testament practice of facts in a case could not be established unless there were two or three witnesses. So it's taking a precedent from the Old Testament and taking it to the New. Just because somebody thinks someone else has sinned and needs to deal with it, they need more help. They need more witnesses. There needs to be an establishment of facts so there's not bias, so there's not slander, so there's not things going on that shouldn't go on. The, the church discipline, like I said, and I think what Jesus is saying here is he's reassuring his disciples that when they set up the church and when he's gone, his promise to them is, I'll be with you in the decisions you make in the midst of that tough, tough time of church discipline. When two or three are gathered in my name to administrate church discipline, I will be there among them. I'm not absent from that. I'm completely involved in that. I am helping in that. I'm wrapped up in the church discipline process. And is it true that if John and Matt and I are together that Jesus is there? Well, yeah. Of course it is. But that's not what this verse is saying. And so we've got to look at the context. We've got to see what's there for us. Now, I know that was a whirlwind, but here's what I'd like you to do. Um, the groups that left last week are going to go to their rooms. Um, those who stay in here, if you could gather into smaller groups, appoint a leader to kind of help figure out where we're going in your different groups. I want you to go to these three passages, Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, some of you can rattle that one off, right? Second uh, Chronicles 7, 14. That's uh, like the National Day of Prayer verse every year. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Some familiar verses. I want us to look at the context. I want us to look around what's going on. And I want you to put into practice um, some of those graphs. The circle, okay, come out from it. Look at the context. Look at what's before, what's after, what's going on in, what kind of genre it is. And this is not meant to be 
go to the library and get one of the commentaries. This is a fairly simple exercise where you just take in more than the single verse. So look around the verse. Discuss in your groups what is actually going on here. What is actually going on? What's the context for these promises? What's the context for what's being said? So we want to do that right now. Um, If you finish early, I would encourage you to pray for each other in your group. Ask how um, things are going. We've got about 15 minutes. So I'll dismiss the groups that are heading up to their rooms. And adults that are in here, if you could get into groups, that would be great. Thank you.